Where did X-Men come from in the first place? For those five or six of you who may not know <laughs> the story here. Well, let's see. I don't know whether to tell you the truth or make it an interesting story. Um, I'll compromise. The, um, I had already done the Fantastic Four, and I had done Spider-Man, and I had done the Hulk. And I was looking for something else to do. And I thought the Fantastic Four was kind of successful, so I would do another group. But as you probably know, the toughest thing is to figure out where does a superhero get his or her power from. I mean, how many people can be bitten by radioactive spiders or zonked by gamma rays or cosmic rays? And I don't know that much about rays. I had run out of rays. <laughs> so I was really stymied, and then inspiration hit. I realized I'm going to take the cowardly way out. If I say that my heroes are mutants and they were just born that way, I don't have to explain anything. I don't have to use radioactivity. They're born that way. That's it. Take it or leave it. So, so I was able to come up with a whole caboodle of heroes who were born that way. See, that's how clever, I mean, how inventive I am. Uh, they're born that way. Now, leave me alone. <laughs> so um, that was it. And I was lucky enough to have a genius like Jack Kirby draw the strip. So everybody loved it. I, I have been lucky all my life. I come up with a few cockamamie ideas. I get a guy like Kirby to make them look great. I get a producer like Lauren Shula Donna to make the movie look great. I get people like, well, they were there a minute ago. That and, and everybody makes the things that I started look great, and I take the credit for it. And I'm just enough of a phony to take the credit for it. And there you go. You got War and Peace written? Uh, yeah, no, no, I'm still. Wait a minute. I in the background, I I hear Jeff still doing his Marvel team up. So <laughs> Jeff and, and Bill are, are competing Jeff. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got to get Jeff and Bill to do an episode together, and <laughs> just I don't want to be the one to edit it. Uh, who's got the bandwidth? <laughs> Yeah, the sad thing is, is uh, looking for the, uh, see if I had any uh, new mutants. Uh, I happened to find, I got like 10 or 15 Marvel team-up books. Nice. So I'm going to have to give them to Jeff so he can synopsis. I was going to say, I think Jeff's summary was the length of 10 or 15 Marvel team-up books. <laughs> hey, it's his first time. Give him a break. Yeah. Not, I, I think synopsis, yeah. Uh, there, there is a certain art to synopsizing a book that I'm not even sure I have, I've grasped yet. Oh no, you're fine. But it, plus I, think, I don't. Hmm? Plus, I don't spend my days and nights finding new ways to mock you. I, it's, that's what I do for Jeff. So that is true. And not not that it would take you days and nights to find ways to. <laughs> to <laughs> really? I think sometimes I just hang it out there, and just nobody feels like hitting it out of the park. <laughs> Back to the bin.
let's be honest here. We're not all the king of the prom. I mean, it is a little bit of what we do and who we are. But even non-geeks aren't all king of the prom either. <laughs> no, no, but you go to the comic shop and you see your fair share of winners. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and that's and look, I've been one of those guys that somebody has probably looked at and gone, eh, that's a winner. So, I mean, you know, I'm not holding myself out above this. I'm just saying it, we're not exactly the king of social graces. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess anybody who's gone into the foreign comic book store and been treated like they were the uh, the Americans in the tavern in America, both oh. in London, oh, no, knows they what that feels like. Oh, yeah, they don't talk at you. They don't look at you. Can they, I help you? <laughs> they sneer at you. You don't belong in there. That's a, I will tell you the funniest one. There was a little comic shop down there. We lost ours. You know this, right? I think yeah, Jeff mentioned think it last you, week. You I'm that. sure. I'm sure you tuned out by the time he told you that, but Jeff told you that last episode. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I definitely remember it. <laughs> we lost Although I also, I also remember, uh, was it Ron who said something about me uh, on, on uh, D4G? Uh, what was it? No, I, I, don't, I can't even remember the exact line, but something about me being ancient. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, the, if the glass slipper fits, Cinderella. <laughs> um, no, but we... we, we we lost our comic shop and there was one that was open in St. Mary's down the road, about 30 minutes down the road. And it was called what you want comics. And this was so far back. It was right around the time that, uh, Kevin Smith was doing his Spider-Man and black cat miniseries. Did the second issue of that come out yet? Well, (laughs) that's, that's the thing. It was right around the time the final issue had finally come out. And, I went into the shop because that's the, it was the closest thing we had. It was 30 minutes drive away, but it was the closest shop we had. And I went in there and it was an okay shop. But the guy, of course, who owned it was a collector and he owned the shop so that he could hang out with his friends and play role-playing games all day. And I went in there and said, uh, Hey, did you get, did you get that, uh, that last issue of Spider-Man, the black cat? I don't have it. I know it's out. I need to get it. And he looked at me and goes, no, I didn't get that. I said, why? Said, well, you know, that first issue really sucked. And then he started delaying it. So I said, forget it. I'm not going to buy any more of them. And I thought, you're owning a business. <laughs> it's not about, I'm only going to carry things I like. But a lot of a lot of comic store owners, which I are know. a dying breed to begin with, are not businessmen. Well, you know, we were talking about this today. And I, was, I, I don't even remember who I was talking about it with. It doesn't matter because I was talking and it was important. And <laughs> That's uh, why I, he has a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we were talking, Garrison, was it you I was talking? No, it wasn't you, was it? No, it was, you know what? It was my wife. She had to put up with this. And uh, I was just talking about how we always talk about how the bottom fell out right after Superman, the death of Superman, and the right around X-Men number one, how the bottom fell out in the market. We always blame the speculators. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, one of the things that was happening, it's don't blame the speculators who went and bought 5 million copies of X-Men number one and put them away. There, there were people who did that. But at the same time, there were comic shops, and they were legion, who were buying hundreds of copies of these issues, Death of Superman, X-Men number one. They were putting half of them out, or a small percentage of them out, then selling them out, and then putting out the next batch, but marking them all up. Yeah. So they're actually holding out product in order to artificially inflate the values of them. And that killed they killed themselves because they wound up sitting on so much merchandise because of that. That's a fair point. I can't... Uh... Yeah. 
can't argue with that. You never hear that point being made, but a lot of these comic shops did themselves in out of that greed. They tried to take advantage of the speculators. Yes. And screwed themselves in the process. Basically, but basically, I guess what it comes down to is those those comic store owners became speculators on their own. Yeah, but if they had just fed the beast, they wouldn't have been stuck with all that merchandise. The bottom would have fallen out in a different way, but they wouldn't have they wouldn't have crashed so hard. Yeah, I I think the the real thing that killed the comic stores or that's killing the comic stores is the digital accessibility of books, whether through legitimate or illegitimate means. Well, Jeez, now let's talk about that Jeez. though. Jeez, ahead, Scott, do you have an opinion on uh, the death of print comics? Yes, I do. In fact. <laughs> Tell us more, Mr. Riffin. Well, I, you know, it, it's it's kind of being modified as we speak. Yeah, I've been talking about this for a while, how they're trying to kill the print comic, and Marvel is the best example of how they're trying to kill it. Because, I mean, I can't, we can't buy Marvel comics now in Brunswick, Georgia. It's almost like it's prohibition all over again. <laughs> they don't sell in big box stores anymore, and guess what? That's all we've got. We don't have a comic shop. They're only selling directly. If you want to buy paper, you got to do it directly or wait for the trade. we got comic uh, stores over here. Why don't you come on up? Uh, I did. Do you know how many comic stores we had when we went to? And we had my mother-in-law with us when we went to New York. And uh, she got to the point where she said, not another comic store. <laughs> yes, another comic store. It was the coolest thing in the world to be able at 11 o'clock at night to go to Midtown Comics. That is a cool aspect of it that you can go at all yeah. hours. Of course, there, I can honestly say I've never been to Midtown at 11 o'clock at night. Well, I had to buy a new shirt because we were staying an extra night that we didn't know we were staying. Yeah, I remember that story. Yeah. So, well, I won't tell it again. But uh, <laughs> anybody who wants that, just co- just <laughs> check back to Scott's first appearance on the show. You put an asterisk in the box and then tell the issue number. And then. Yeah, like I remember that off the top of my head. <laughs> that's what editing I do know it was the first time you were on, whenever that. That's what a hundred cuts on your podcast are for, Paul. There you but, go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I loved being able to go. The week we went to, I'd say we went to. Three or four Midtown comics, probably four, because there was one down the road from our hotel near the financial district. There was one a couple of blocks off of Times Square. There was one in FAO Schwartz. And thinking there was another one we went to. Plus, we went to uh, whose universe? Jim. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, Jim Hanley. Jim Hanley's universe. We went there. And there was we were a guy in the, the alleyway with the uh, trench coat that was. Now, it's been about 20 years since I worked in Manhattan. Mm. But when I worked in Manhattan, one of the cool aspects was there were street vendors that would have a table set up with comics. Yes. Yes. As you walk along Broadway, you'd just see guys selling comics. And, you know, it would be the five for a dollar variety. Yeah, we saw some of that in, uh, I guess it was around Soho where we were when we saw that. Which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And we we and I got in an argument with the guy because he kept trying to sell me this is real Superman the movie. This came out when Superman the movie did nineteen eighty one. I was like, no sir, that was nineteen seventy eight. Nope, nineteen eighty one. No sir, that was nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> but I'm a tourist. What do I know? <laughs> That's it. You had you had tourist in neon lights written above you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah, well, the last time I went into Manhattan, I, I felt like the uh, salesman I dealt with thought I had tourists written above me. <laughs> How some, could you be mistaken for a tourist? I don't know, but there was some guy, I, it was like just before, shortly before Christmas, and there was a, a guy selling like some sort of One Direction pictures, and they, they write, they like calligraphy, write a name in it if you want. 
Yes. So I said, how, how much for that? And he says, uh, I think he says like $10. I said, for the whole thing, $10. Yeah. So then he says, what name? And I, I tell him my daughter's name and he writes it in there. And then, uh, then he tries to charge me $30 for it and says, well, it's $10 for the picture and then $10 for the frame around it and then $10 for me to write the name. <laughs> and idiot that I was, I had already handed him a 20 ah! to, to just get my $10 change. So now you're, you're bargaining upward. So, yeah, I was kind of in, in you know, I, I basically was going to, like, grab my, my $20 bill back from him and throw the freaking sign in his face. But eventually what I did, I agreed to pay him 15 for it. And, and, ah. and, and, the, and then there was peace. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like some of our adventures on Canal Street. Well, I'll put it this way. The last time I was in New York City. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a giant ape climbing the Empire State Building. <laughs> No, uh, my college had to put a rule in that you could not uh, leave the hotel without uh, um, notifying the uh, the host. Without notifying the police. Because uh, I, I disappeared at 11 o'clock at night, and they're trying to find me, and I come walking in, and they're like, what? where have you been? And I said, oh, I went down to the village, to the record shop. And like, at 11 o'clock at night, I said, well, that was because I got on the wrong train and ended up in Harlem. And... Ooh. And I just got off the train and okay. walked around and got back on the other train and went the other way. But well, I'm glad you I'm glad you clarified that though, because when you said I disappeared, I mean usually you never describe yourself as having disappeared. Because well, you usually dis- know where you are. I know exactly where I am. I, I'm okay. always in command of that facility. But uh, everyone else's opinion is hey, he doesn't seem to know where he's at. Oh, okay. Uh, it was all a plan, but uh, I would never it, say I disappeared. Well, they said I disappeared. Okay. And hence the college had to instill a new rule when we, whenever they sent a people group to New York. Could not leave the building without uh, getting prior approval. Congratulations. Yes. Pretty much that's uh, every every rule there is is probably because of me at some point. I believe that. <laughs> that's a point of pride. If ever I heard one. <laughs> I have so screwed up everything I've tried to do. That they had to put rules in place to keep you from screwing up the way I did. <laughs> well, it's, it's the uh, you know the ad for the college that has your picture on it, and then underneath says, "Don't let this be you." Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised. Or don't let this have... happen to you. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't have that. Have you seen me with the little phone number tabs at the bottom when he disappeared? Uh, actually, it's in my picture, and it says, "What me worry?" Let's see. I'm trying to find your issues. Well, I know I, I have don't. so many issues. <laughs> I'm not commenting. You know, see here again, I'm getting all my shots in on Ron. Tomorrow I'll be totally flat when we actually record Dinner for Geeks. Well, now yeah, you're down to the you. final four tomorrow, right? Um, going we're down at to the two. final four now. Going down, so we'll down to the tomorrow. Yeah, we're, to, we're going down to two tomorrow. I got my so. votes in. I saw it. We've gotten a few votes. And yeah, let me, should I... Well, tomorrow I'll unveil my list of grievances against the episode that uh, the less interesting two were on. Oh, really? You don't want to do that on on here? No, because I thought I'd do it a little more dramatically with both parties in front of me. Jeff is not here. There's this whole thing. Well, let me. I will say this, and I'll say it again tomorrow, because it, it can't bear being said enough. Um, there is this, there was this whole riff about me and the emails. Now, when we oh, yes. started. 
Huh? Yes, I do. And you've already, you've already addressed that in your uh, IM to me. Jeff started the email for Dinner for Geeks, and I didn't know it. He didn't tell anybody. And I went to create the email for Dinner for Geeks and found it already exists. And I thought, well, that's a strange coincidence. And so then I contacted Jeff because he's the only other one I would have thought might have done it. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I created it. Okay, good. Will you give me the password so I can get into it? Uh, okay. Nothing. So a couple days later, hey, will you give me the password? Uh, yeah, I'll get you that password. Now it's just a password. So three times I ask him, I finally get the password. I log in and I set it up so that when something is received in that box, it forwards to me. Now, it still stays in the box. He can access it anytime he wants, but it forwards to me. And then I went and bought dinnerforgeeks.com. I'm finding that domain purchases are a, a cool thing and a useful tool. So I kind of kind of like Jeff, actually. And <laughs> so, so um, I bought dinnerforgeeks.com, and I set up geeks at dinnerforgeeks.com, which does nothing except forward to that Gmail account Jeff set up, which then forwards a copy to me. Which means every single email that has been sent to geeks at dinnerforgeeks.com is sitting on the Gmail that Jeff created, Jeff set up, and Jeff created the password for. And then to say that I'm not letting him see the emails, I don't know what that was. Ron, I expect to go with it because he just doesn't have a clue. But Jeff knows. Interesting. Yeah. I guess I guess we're going to need Jeff to respond to that tomorrow. Well, that's I will let him I, do I, it. You know, I could be wrong on this Amazing Spider-Man 2 thing. I think people are starting to get that it's not really a Marvel Universe film. You mean I the think, non-fans? Yeah, I, I, yeah, the, the straights. I think are <laughs> is, that, is that what we call them? Yeah, it's better than muggles. I prefer yeah. late people. You <laughs> well, know why? You know why? Because there's people who don't collect comics get laid. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I think they're starting to get that this Marvel Universe thing is cool and cohesive and kind of tells a big story. Unlike the Star Wars novels, which used to tell a big story, okay. and I, I think they're they're coming to realize this Spider Man's not really it's Marvel, but it's not that Marvel. And you think that's going to affect it adversely as far as box office? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't think it'll go. I could be wrong. It will definitely not do four. I don't think it'll go three. I think that this movie's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I've only come to that opinion in the last couple of days. I, I was kind of lukewarm on it. And mm -hmm. just the more time that's going by, the more I'm just not hearing buzz. I'm not hearing anything that's going to make me get excited about it. And I'm starting to more and more expect that I'm just not going to like this movie. No. And it's been out internationally for almost two weeks and you're not hearing buzz. Yeah. I mean, other people are seeing this movie and they're not coming to you going, holy crap, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I heard from Andy Leyland two weeks before Captain America opened here how awesome it was. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, it was Andy showing was up on Rotten Tomatoes with huge numbers. And, and yep. you know, you, there, there was buzz. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then I have to fight to try and keep my expectations low because if I get too high on it, then, my ex you know, I end up ruining it for myself by expecting too much. Yep, which I think happened to me with Captain America. I think that happened to me with Iron Man and Thor because when I saw each of them at home... Later, I enjoyed them much more than when I saw them in the movie theater. Yeah, I was not, I didn't dislike, but I was not in love with the Captain America movie. And I will say at the time I had been up for an insane amount of time, 
I was very sleep deprived. I had a, a major allergy attack going on and work called me four times during the movie. And that could have affected my enjoyment. You think? Yeah. So I can't, I can't see how that could affect anything yeah. adversely. <laughs> I'm just that kind of guy that just lets those 87,000 little things get to me. But yeah, I'm going to give it another shot. But uh, the Spider-Man thing, I'm just, uh, the only things I'm hearing are everything that we thought might be the case in the first place. Eh, too many villains. Eh, just too busy. Not telling a good story. And, and, Every, yeah. and not hitting the characters and making them feel like the characters we've read in the comics. No, no. Well, there's, That's uh, what yeah. I fear. Yeah. I think well, you're too close to your microphone, Scott. What? What are you talking about? He's probably got a professional microphone. I have, I have, uh, I spent more money than I probably should on this microphone. Yeah, but you, you were very fuzzy there for a second. Did it sound that way to you too, Ron? Yeah, well, it, it did sound a little bad. You're just afraid of insulting him. Uh, no. <laughs> He's got to face me tomorrow. It doesn't bother me. It's, it's you know, get, get uh, it's, some vegetables then. You know, if it wasn't ah. for the internet, I I wouldn't be able to insult Scott as much as I enjoy to. <laughs> Anytime I can get him to quit twice in one week is uh, that's true. Oh, it's a good thing. So I I heard a criticism of the Captain America movie, which had me baffled. Okay. Somebody they they were doing the comparison of the DC movies and the Marvel movies, and we've gone through this. To, to to such an extent now that I really don't want to rehash any of that stuff. But yeah. somebody was criticizing the Marvel Universe movies for being too intertwined <laughs> and requiring that you have to see all of them in order to get what's going on. Uh, first and off, you don't have to see them all. First of all, they all stand alone just fine. Exactly. They all stand alone. But you get that added dimension of a broader universe and a bigger canvas on which the story is told. That's what I love about. That's what most people love about this stuff. And it's and it's, and it's Easter egg hunting is what the, the, for the fans. What was that? Easter egg hunting. Yes. You know? yeah. Easter egg hunting for us without banging the Easter eggs over the heads of the people who don't know what's going on to the point where they start feeling feeling like they're missing the joke. Right. Yeah. They don't have to get it to enjoy the movie. Me, me not yeah. being a Marvel fan. Uh, they, when the first Spider-Man film came out with Tobey Maguire, uh, my brother goes, hey, did you notice who uh, his doctor was that he went and saw? And I said, uh, no. He says, that's the guy who becomes a lizard. I'm like, yeah. how am I supposed to know that? It's Dr. Connors. Yeah, I had no idea. I never read the books. It's kind of Everybody sad. loves him. Kind of sad, Ron. Just, just it really so. is. Spider-Man of all things. Now, don't get, don't get me started about whiny kids. We're going to be talking about that for a while tonight. <laughs> you know you know what I've been meaning to bring up on the uh, on the talk show, and I haven't been able to do, is this So Lena Dunham is writing an Archie miniseries. Okay, and what, what's the focus of that? What? Uh, the, the chick, that, what's the show called? Girls? Oh, okay. On HBO, she's the writer and star of it, and she's not very attractive yet. She's naked all the time. And that's pretty much her claim to fame. She writes a nasty, raunchy show, and she writes herself nude scenes. Wow. And they went, Archie went, hey, let's put this person in our all-ages comic. Now, have you seen Afterlife with Archie? <laughs> I, I, that is not a joke. That, that, that's a real series. 
No, 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 no. Life with Archie, right? No, this is called Afterlife with Archie. And he's dead? It's no, he's not dead, but it's basically it's it's like a Walking, walking dead. dead scenario <laughs> in the no. Archie universe. No. They've had four or five issues of it so far and it's awesome. Uh. You know what happens, uh, uh, you know, spoilers for anybody who who wants to to get into this at some point, but uh Reggie hits Jughead's dog Hot Dog with his car by you know by accident and it's a, basically it's a hit and run. That, that's what he says. <laughs> it's yeah. you know he hits the dog and then he he just runs away. They should so, get Dilton Doily in there to reconstruct the scene and make sure if it was an accident or not. But uh, Jughead Jughead finds the dog dying and brings it to Sabrina to try and get his her ants uh, to revive him. The ants say, no, no, we can't help you because that's dark magic. We can't do it. Sabrina feels so bad that she does it. But when the dog is brought back, he's basically a zombie dog. And he bites uh, Jughead, turns him into a zombie, and the thing starts uh, to spread. And it's it's done so well, you, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, you know, that Sabrina's nothing but trouble. She's the one that brought Kiss to Riverdale, too. Yeah, and didn't, they, yeah. didn't, they get tur- didn't Half the Town get turned into zombies then? Uh, half the town, yeah, Half the Town did something happen to him when Kiss was around. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, like I said, I've read four issues of it so far, and it's just really good. And it's, wow. it's done fairly serious. And there's, there's, I think it's in the fourth issue, there's, there's like a real, you know, you know, it's not, not that I'm going to bring, it's going to bring a tear to my eye or anything, but kind of a touching moment where Hot Dog is going after Archie, <laughs> and then Archie's dog comes up to defend him and basically sacrifices his own life to protect Archie. And it's done really well, I'm telling you. It sounds funny, but it's done well. Oh, God, if there's any proof. That they're not writing these damn things for kids anymore. <sighs> and that's at another point, Archie's dad gets zombified, and he's coming after his mother, and Archie has to basically brain him with a golf club. Yes. And then he has to kill Yeah, it's definitely not for kids. Wow. It's, it's one of the better things I've read in 2014. <laughs> that's just painful. I'm that not sure I'm doing it justice, but it, it, no. it really was enjoyable. Well, get Dr. Bill. He'll summarize it for us. <laughs> <laughs> you got an hour? Yeah. <laughs> why Why is he only going to do two pages? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, you guys got anything else or you want to jump into this? Jump into it. All We've right. been waiting for I never did an, an intro, hour. so... <clears throat> Okay. Hey everybody, and welcome to Back to Dinner for Geeks. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> why? Is that why we didn't law because it was Dinner for Geeks? <laughs> did you Did you want to law? I didn't, but I figured I would as a courtesy to my host. All right. Well, let's say. Well, Ron lawed last last time, so he's yeah. What so, the hell was that? <laughs> I didn't say he lawed well. Ah. So uh, you're on like, the, like uh, the one professional voice that does this show. Let's yeah. see if you can do justice for a law. And I've never lied. You know that. I refused to lie the previous times we've been on. But I felt so bad having heard Jeff and Ron's laws. You know, you should be trying to put them to shame with a high quality law. Well, I'm going to try to do a decent quality, but I'm not, you know, I'm not you guys. So 
Here we go. La la la. If 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 it would if it would come in well on the recording, which I don't think it will, so I won't do it. But I would give you a uh, round of applause for that one. I think that oh, was thank a, you very much. A, ter- a tremendous la. Thank you, thank you. That's that's you could have just jumped right into dueling Arnold's with that one. <laughs> See what you know what I need to get you guys. I've been I was thinking about you guys the other day, and I've got to get this because I don't think either one of you has seen this, and it's a classic. I've got to find the videotape that I've got it on, but. Uh, one of Arnold's early first TV appearances was on Streets of San Francisco. Have you ever seen this? I don't think I ever have. Oh my god! And it's Richard Hatch Streets of San Francisco too. Not so Michael. You Douglas know it's got to be good. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. And and the the premise is awesome. It's excuse me, I'm sorry. It's awesome. The premise. Arnold is this really muscle bound guy. Wow, what? he's playing out of type. He's playing, he's playing a muscle-bound Austrian guy. And he's jogging through the park at the beginning, and he meets a girl in the park, and they start chatting. She's chatting him up, and you know what she wants. So then she's like, why don't you, you know, I'm a photographer. Why don't you come back to my place for a little bit, and I can take some pictures of you doing your thing. And so he goes over there, and he and he uh, he takes off his clothes, except for his, you know, his little underwear, and he starts doing his pose, and she starts giggling as he's doing his poses. I mean, they're all real, genuine Hans and Franz-looking poses. They should he have him at that cute. point crying like Irene Cara in, fr- in Fame. No, no, it's better. <laughs> she starts giggling, and he, he's like, oh, what the, hey! And she, she says, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, well, you told me to show you. And uh, she says, well, I'm sorry. I just, I, I can't help it. You look like a big freak like that. And he goes, I'm no freak. And, and he kills so, him. Well, no, yeah, what happens is she starts laughing again, and he freaks out and shakes her to death. And he's yelling the whole time, stop laughing at me! Oh, that sounds awesome. And so then it becomes it becomes a murder spree across San Francisco. He keeps meeting girls who want to see his muscles, and then they laugh at him, and he shakes them to death. <laughs> it is it's the best thing. Does George eventually shoot him in the back of the head while talking about the rabbits? <laughs> you gotta see it. all i'm telling you is you gotta see it that it sounds is, great it sounds, sounds like something i would enjoy watching i have to admit it's one of the all-time great pieces of entertainment that nobody knows <laughs> hey I'm sorry. It just looks so ridiculous. <laughs> well, you told me to show you. Oh, forgive me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh. Oh, you're just licking your eyes. Oh, I told you I was sorry. I, I didn't mean to laugh. But you did. You think I'm funny, huh? You think I'm funny. Well, you've got to admit. I mean, when you do that, you look like some big ape or something. Stop that! So anybody listening, if you haven't figured it out already, uh, I once again have two of my friends from Dinner for Geeks with me. Uh, Ron Sadowski is with me again. Hello. And as a rebuttal for last time, we have Mr. Scott <laughs> Rifen. Hi. So That's all I'm saying. That's it. You, you're done uh, with your yep. attacks on your fellow uh <laughs> Dinner geeks. Yeah, look, I gotta save. I gotta save my A material for my show, man. No offense. <laughs> Fair enough. I can't <laughs> argue with that. 
Uh, don't worry, you gave me enough. I've got plenty of attacking with tomorrow. So So Scott and Ron have joined me for the second week of our X-Men month. And uh, as I've already said, uh, we're not doing anything original. We're just following along with the Two True Freaks X-Men X-Men focus that they're doing, and we decided what the heck, we're going to do it too. So for week two, we are covering the New Mutants. And without any actual research, my memory of the New Mutants is in the early 80s, they decided X-Men was so popular, they needed to come out with a second series, and they decided basically to go back to the original concept of the school with young mutants attending, and they started with a graphic novel which I think yes. at the time they went for like five ninety nine or somewhere in that range. Yeah, crazy price. Yes, absolutely. And uh, then went on to the series, and this was still before the X-Men franchise exploded to, I don't know, at its most, I have no idea how many issues a month they were coming out with, but at this point there were two. You had X-Men and you had New 1400. It felt like it, that's for sure. And uh, I read the first, the beginning of the series... Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually, not so much that I dropped out of this series, because I eventually dropped out of all series for a while. Uh, but that was around the time when Sienkiewicz was uh, drawing it. And I think, Scott, you had a little uh, little rant on that you wanted to go into? <laughs> oh, no, do I, we have 16 hours? No, <laughs> no I just, look, I, I will tell you I started buying New Mutants when issue one came out because it was issue one. And at the time, I was, I don't know, 11, 12. And my brother had told me that every single number one you buy is going to be worth a fortune one day. So well, then my that, parents that go, turned out to be true. No, oh, of course. Of course. And then my parents would go, why are you buying that when you should be saving money for college? I go, it's, I am saving money for college. It's an investment. And then uh, the truth was I liked a lot of these books. And, I, and what would happen with me, which is what they're supposed to do, they – they always try to leave some plot threads dangling so you'll come back next month. And I did. And I kept coming back. And, you know, and they cross over with other books and I'd kept adding books. So I started with New Mutants because it was number one. Same reason I started with G.I. Joe. And same reason I started with The Thing. And same reason I started with Team America. And <laughs> so it, it uh, but when Sienkiewicz came on board, it really took on a whole different quality. A quality that I couldn't understand. <laughs> a quality of ink that seemed to be randomly spilled on the page. <laughs> I could not tolerate that. And I don't care about art as long as a good story is being told, but I could not read those issues. So I gave up shortly after the Sienkiewicz era kicked in. I, ge- I probably gave it, I don't know, eight, nine, ten issues. And just finally in frustration said, nope, that's it. I'm done, Jerry. I'm out. See, now I... I- I think Sienkiewicz's work is, I think it's a little bit of an acquired taste, first of all. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's not, <laughs> I don't think that's a unique opinion. Uh, but I think it's really good for certain types of stories, certain types of gothic type stories. Uh, it doesn't really fit any kind of lighthearted story. And at least initially, The New Mutants was more of a lighthearted series. Mm. And it became very dark with Sienkiewicz. So it did kind of fit the artwork and the artwork fit the stories. Uh, But I think it was kind of a drastic change from what they had already been doing on the series. So as, as especially as a young kid, I'm sure, you know, you're not ready for a, for a change that dramatic. And I could see where that might turn you off and make you not want to read it anymore. 
Yes, because I so much more embrace change now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are one of the more open-minded people uh, (laughs) sitting in your house on the computer right now. Yes. I think that's probably the only way that'll count. The... Let me just tell you this, Paul, about acquired tastes. An acquired taste means something tastes like total crap, and you have to sit there and find ways to convince yourself it doesn't taste like crap. <laughs> I don't want to convince myself that crap doesn't taste like crap. I'm perfectly content just not eating the crap. <laughs> and once again, showing that you are truly open-minded. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to acquire a taste. I have taste. You know what? There are certain things that you just don't acquire tastes for. And I accept that. <laughs> you know, my mom, my mom is 83 years old. Mm-hmm. And to this date, if I go to their house, when I leave, I have to leave with like a bag of leftovers that she's mm-hmm. got for me. So now I'm 51 years old. I'm no kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm there. She has a, th- a thing of pea soup. Mm-hmm. She says, do you like pea soup? I said, no, I don't like pea soup. She takes it. She puts it in the bag and she says, maybe your taste has changed. <laughs> you know what? My taste isn't changing at this point. Yeah. No. I'm not going to all of a sudden like pea soup. <laughs> Everybody in my family's already on notice about my eating habits. Yeah, well, so is my mom, but she just... Yeah, but, uh, family? Know, Everyone's on notice about your eating habits, Scott. <laughs> so how's, how's that French dip working out for you? Um, I called them out on the French dip the other day. I don't know if that was on the show or not. Yes, it was. Okay. <laughs> I detected a hint of onion. Yes. But I'm going to I'm gonna live with that hint of onion as long as it doesn't tear my stomach to shreds. That's very, very nice of you. Well, if I don't, it's going to limit me about two things on the menu at that point. So. Well, you're, you're, you're okay with the fries, right? The, the, they oh, don't fries. For you. Let me tell you something. We do most of these shows at Zachary's because I do trivia night on Thursdays. And it's the best time for all of us to get together. Well, it all started because we were doing dinner after trivia. I think we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, well, I was doing dinner after trivia, and then Ron and I became the people doing dinner after trivia, and then Ron and Jeff and I became the gang after trivia. So it just it, it morphed into that. Um, but so most weeks we do it at Zachary's because it's just convenient. Let me tell you, those fries are some of the best fries I've ever had in my entire life. But Scott can't tell you that because he actually never tasted the fries because he put so much damn ketchup on them. <laughs> Now, do you put the ketchup on the fries, or do you no, put the ketchup no, on the no. on the plate and dip the yes. fry? Well, it yes. puts half a yeah. plate of ketchup. <laughs> There's so much ketchup, and if he hasn't finished the ketchup with the fries, I don't want to go. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I don't do it every time, but there are times I do. He finishes the ketchup by itself. <laughs> You don't help yourself to something if you're not planning on finishing it. What's the use of a good condiment if you can't eat it on its own? Right. Yeah. They get grossed out of it. We had a thing in... Yeah, no, I got to admit, I'm I'm with them. (laughs) I said I'm with them on that one. On the au jus? No, not the au jus, the the ketchup. Just sitting there eating ketchup on its own kind of, I I think, would be a little gross. I don't help myself. Well, again, it shouldn't be because it's, it's everything that you eat ketchup on without that stuff. Yeah, I know, but that's <laughs> that's like sitting and eating salt. Uh, he does that too. <laughs> or mustard. No, he won't touch mustard. It's plain. No, I love mustard. You're incorrect, yeah. Ron. I love mustard. I've never seen you put mustard. 
Um, well, I haven't been using mustard lately, but mustard is a component of the 57 that I use. So, but no, I use, I, I, I love mustard. Mustard's wonderful. Do you mustard, mustard my, on its own? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I do. <laughs> you know what? I really should invite you over for dinner. I give you a plate of ketchup. You're happy. <laughs> I had a, I, there were times when I was in college and had no money and I had ketchup sandwiches. <laughs> One of my best friends when we were in high school, his parents went away for the weekend. Then I came by, and he was sitting out on his front porch with a jar of mayonnaise and a spoon. (laughs) I said, what are you doing? He said, my parents went away. I had to make myself dinner. (laughs) That's my kind of guy. Uh, Okay. (laughs) See, like I said, I generally like my condiments on other food. Well, sure, but I mean, sometimes you've run out of other food. What do you do? You got to finish the condiment. (laughs) Or you could just put enough of the condiment on your plate for the other food. Well, you know what happens then? You wind up running out or or it gets a little tight. And then you have to have less of what you want on the food. So I just put too much on the plate. And that way I can polish a little bit of it off if I want to. And then clean the plate. (laughs) You know, yeah. Do you, do you like lick it clean or do you use your fingers? What do you do? Um, no, I use a fork. He uses a fork with the ketchup. The salt, he uses his fingers. I do use my fingers with the salt, yeah. Well, the salt, you lick your finger first and then you do it. No, I put it on my palm. Yeah, I put it on my palm, lick my finger, and then, then rub my... Because it's an abrasive. You can clean your teeth with it. <laughs> you can clean your teeth. And you get them squeaky clean, too. They start squeaking. This is kind of uh, hygiene tips with Scott Pro- Scott uh, Beta Scott. <laughs> oh my! All right, I think we go to a, a promo right about here. Yeah. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll do our issues. Okay. The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, and we're back. And ready to do our New Mutants coverage. And... The one thing that jumps out at me is we all picked issues from the first incarnation of the New Mutants. So between the three issues, we only span seven years. How's that for all-encompassing coverage? <laughs> and, and I have to admit, despite the fact that I picked the subject matter, I am far from a New Mutant expert. Mm. As, as I said, I read the first... I don't even know how many issues and then stopped collecting for a while. So uh, by the time Ron's issue and my issue came out, I was no longer buying comics. Ah. Uh. So. 
But let's jump into them. Scott, you have our first one. All right. I have New Mutants number two. 60 cent cover price, which is a little steep for those days. And uh, it's titled Sentinels by Chris Claremont. Bob McLeod, the penciler. Mike Gustavich, the inker. Glennis Wayne, Wayne the uh, colorist. Tom Orzachowski, the letterer. Louise Jones, the editor. And Shooter is the editor-in-chief. All right. We open up the omniscient narrator all but tells you that as Danny Moonstar runs through a jungle being pursued by a horny monster, she's actually in the danger room. Anybody who has read one and a half X-Men comics already knows this, but that's okay. It'd be like if every episode of Star Trek opened like Star Trek 2, where everybody gets killed for fake. Same thing. By the way, let's get this straight right up front. Her name is Psyche. Psyche. P-S-Y-C-H-E. Psyche. Not Psyche. Psyche. I think it's one of the things we probably need to have a national conversation about. But anyway, um, the monster chases her through the jungle and up a mountain. She gets away from him, spends time thinking about why she wound up in her situation, which was, of course, that someone sabotaged the danger room. She's, of course, only thinking about it because she knows we're reading her thoughts and we need the exposition. And apparently we need a lot of exposition. She makes her way around the mountain to find a giant bug-like monster And here's where we start to suspect that Chris Claremont was not paid by the page, but rather by the word. (laughs) As now the giant bug has way more to say than any bug will ever need to say. He tells Danny that she must die. He forces her off the edge of the mountain where she's out cold. And really, that's all he needed to say to her. But anyway, cut to it's a nutty day at the mall. And the rest of the new mutants who are so multicultural, they were the Lost Boys from Hook before Spielberg knew it. They're (laughs) walking. It's ridiculous. Now, who are these red people by them? Huh? Who are the red people? I I don't know. There are because there's Harold Ramis in the front, (laughs) and I and I think there's Roy Thomas in the middle. That could well be. And I think he's hitting on uh, maybe Carol Burnett (laughs) or some some androgynous person. Yeah. Well, there's there's a little swell in the bosom. Anyway, they're uh, they're (laughs) because men don't have that. I'm not touching that. Um, (laughs) Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, That's okay. No, I want that. Uh, They're walking out of a screening of E.T. They decided to have some ice cream because even in the 80s, if you bought your snacks in the movie theater, you actually had to pawn your car title. So while they're doing that, their teacher, Ms. Hunter, Stevie Hunter, decides to leave them totally alone to go find a phone because they're at the mall. What's the big deal? Local toughs approach the Xavier kids and things do get tough, but their girls step in and smooth things over. In the meantime, they're being watched by Sebastian Shaw and the Hellfire of the Hellfire Club and the original Agent Coulson, Henry Peter Jairich. The two spend two solid pages telling each other things about the plot that they should already know. <laughs> but apparently we need to know, so they decide to ha- and but and I would say nobody talks like this, but my wife does. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for you. She's not going to listen to this. Yeah, well, yeah, no, we will be sitting in the car riding around. She'll go, well, of course, you know, the reason why we had to do that was... And I go, I know that. Who are you telling that to? What <laughs> are you saying that for the benefit of? Is there an audience here? What are you... My, you my wife will, Yeah, I know. My wife will speak in exposition sometimes. It's really weird. So I can't... I used to go, well, no one would say that, but my wife doesn't. So anyway... So they spend two solid pages. So, you know, the, the mutants are awfully dangerous. Yes. And, you know, we don't know where they came from. I'm aware of that. Did you also know that? Well, of course we do. This is not Jeopardy. Stop it. So 
Back at the mall, Miss Hunter finally finds a phone. She begins to dial, but not before she's abducted. And yes, when she's abducted, the guy fills up five word balloons. <laughs> now, when you abduct, it's, you're quick, it's stealthy, it's relatively silent. Five word balloons. The abductor identifies himself as a government agent named Michael Rossi. He is wearing the superhero outfit equivalent of mom jeans. <laughs> I, it's it's like a blue thing with tight with the Superman underwear, but the Superman underwear is hiked all the way up to his his rib cage or his uh, solar plexus, his nipples somewhere up there, uh, kind of like Jeff Altman's dad. <laughs> it's anyway. So teacher says, "Yeah, I know who you were. Carol Danvers. Carol Danvers was telling me how good you were in the sack." And then I he love was kids books. Huh? I love kids' books. She does. Well, she says, "Carol Danvers told me about you." And you two were lovers. What? Where would that come up? Yeah, I met this guy in the mom superhero outfit and, uh, you know. <laughs> and that he's a stiff. I mean, dead, not, you know. <laughs> uh, and why that came up. Yeah, I know. I, this Michael, I can't even imagine the conversation that, that uh, Stevie Hunter and Carol Danvers had in this situation. Well, yeah, you know, there's Michael Rossi guy with the government. I know you don't know him. You've never seen him before, but... Uh, Pretty good deal, sack. If you need to talk to him, you know, you got some needs. We can take care of it. And by the way, he's dead, so never mind. I mean, when, what, why were they talking? Anyway, don't know why they were talking. About anyway, because he they says, know well, they, look, live the, they know this huh? is the Marvel Universe. If he's dead, he's going to be back later. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You might want to look him up when he comes back from the dead because he's something else. So, <laughs> Especially when he gets those pants going. Yeah, you never know. Just keep hiking them up. So, anyway, he says he's there to save the kids. In the meantime, there's a practical G8 summit taking place between the Xavier kids and the public school kids. When government agents step in and try to abduct the new mutants, I'm calling them the new mutants because they never call them that in the issue. Uh, Miss Miss Hunter and Miss Hunter and Rossi, which I think was my favorite uh, '70s light rock group. They, they made a good wine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or was they it an Asti Spumanti? That's correct. That's correct. That poor Orson Welles couldn't get a hold of any of it. They ambush him in the parking lot, and the new mutants use their powers to escape. As they're getting away, the Sentinels attacked. Cannonball takes the fight outside. The worst dialect writing I've ever seen in my life. And the rest of the gang follows suit. Sunspot's getting his butt kicked until he turns on the juice as he topples a Sentinel. Unfortunately, topples topples them right into the mall and onto a comic store and a Spencer's. And the Spencer's store. Huh? Now we know what happened to all the comic stores. Yeah, that's right. He crushed them with a Sentinel. The Spencer store was all a buzz, not because of the fight, but the action caused all the personal massagers to go off. Everybody teams up to defeat the Sentinels. The government agencies are arrested. Why were they arrested? The guy, the, why are they, are they here here's my badge call my field office we're done but anyway so the rest of the new mutants return to the school for gifted youngsters youngsters has anybody ever used the word youngsters in the official title of anything by the way hmm I, I can't think of anybody here let me start the school for gifted youngsters really Charles do you want to use that word Perhaps something. Let's bring in a focus group and see how youngsters works out. And let me it's let like, me invite 
Wolverine who's like 112 into the yeah. school. And and let's say it placed on the focus group testing about five slots below lads and lassies. So anyway, they get there, they find Danny out cold and wet in the danger room to be continued. <laughs> well, then Xavier's got smoke coming off his neck, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot. Oh, I forgot all about the Wraith. Yeah, the, the, the bug, the giant talking bug is actually apparently not really there, but actually growing inside of Professor Xavier. It's a brood. Now to be continued. Now to be continued, yes. Yeah. I'm going to just, before I forget, uh... my favorite thing in this entire issue is when they're in the ice cream parlor, and it's Mm -hmm. 310 flavors, and underneath it there's a sign that says, Sorry, out of vanilla. (laughs) Yes, I caught that. The one flavor... It it's just makes me think of the cheese shop with Monty Python. I'll take cheddar. We don't get much call for it. <laughs> it's the single most popular cheese in the world. Really? <laughs> Not around here. Oh, yeah. And they're eating... Uh, one of the kids, the kid that looks like young Doc Ock, is eating some <laughs> kind of a green ice cream. That's pistachio, Pat. That's pistachio? Well, yeah. nuts. See, I know nothing of it. <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where to begin with this. I picked this issue because it had Sentinels in it, and I enjoy Sentinels. But even the Sentinels are given precious little to do. They are, and they're not as threatening as I would like my Sentinels to be. No, yeah, these the little kids just take them out in half a heartbeat, and they're kid. These are inexperienced rookie kids. What should have happened? Let me pull my. They should Roger all be Eagles. dead. They should. <laughs> now you want to see the issue finally go up in value. Um, what, what should have, I, I used to always criticize Roger Ebert's criticism because half the time when Roger Ebert would make, would review a movie, instead of telling you the merits of the movie, he would say, well, here's what the movie should have been. That always drove me nuts because that he's, he's not reviewing the movie that should have been. He's reviewing the movie that happened. Uh, but I'm going to say in this issue, as part of their growing experience, what should have happened was the Sentinels come to town and just wipe their butts clean. Yeah, and, and then and then the big boy team has to come and save them. Yeah, it's a learning experience for them, and it should be one of those things where they they take some hard knocks, and instead they're just like, "What sentinels? These guys? What, these take over everything? What's the big deal here?" And they wipe them out. Yeah, I do like, and I I don't think I'd like it if it had stayed for any long period of time, but I do like kind of the slightly different character model for the sentinels in this issue. Yes, it it just kind of looked cool to me. Yeah, I, do, I agree. It's a little more complex looking. It's not purple. I mean, when I think giant and purple, I think Galactus. The Sentinels think, are kind of also. Do you think Galactus in short pants or long? <laughs> <laughs> With, and does he have a big G on his belt? No. Nah, because there's yeah, nothing I'm... quite in the cosmic forum that goes over as well as having your initial on your belt. I never in really. English. Did... <laughs> in English. Well, we could pull the Superman and say, well, actually, in his language, it's a symbol of hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> it's a symbol of galactic appetite, actually. And But, uh, yeah, I the other thing that, that struck me as I was reading this, so I just totally, you, you tend to forget how really basic coloring used to be. I was going to, I was actually going to bring up the coloring. So it's, I'm glad you did. <laughs> 
Although I got to say, I think Joel Schumacher did actually, as I'm looking back now at the Sentinels, I do think Joel Schumacher had a hand because they do have nipples. <laughs> yes, they do. I, I, I don't, I mean, color was basic back then, but I think this is also kind of some uninspired coloring. Yeah, everything's, I mean, the, the whole mall is orange. Sorry, here's orange. <laughs> And you, you read you read people standing there. I, I don't know. It's, and and I mean, every it seems like almost everything is primary colors. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of effort to mix things to kind of change it up. And I, I mean, the other books coming out around this time had a more sophisticated color palette than this. Yeah, can you imagine how Bob McCloud feels on the page where the Sentinels burst into the mall, and everybody looks up and sees them, and everybody who's looking up and seeing them, who drawn in fairly decent detail, they're all yellow. Straight up, straight through, yellow. Scott, are you sure you weren't the colorist on this? No. <laughs> why? No, I can't color. They would not be in the lines if it were me. But but today's coloring, and I don't think people will understand it and realize that coloring in this day and age is really part of the art process much more than it used to be. I mean, it's really kind of what makes those photorealistic comics look photorealistic now. And mm-hmm. flexograph. Yeah, there's no flexograph. Well, you could, you can, if you, if you ever listen to an interview with Neil Adams, he goes on and on about how he, he had a, a big hand in the expansion of the color palette even back then, because they talked about how little they could do, and he would say, "Well, no, why can't you do whatever it is?" I don't even remember exactly how he did it, but he just, I, I. I I'm sure he exaggerates sometimes. There might be a little hyperbole to his stories. Oh, but yeah. I suspect that they are based in truth because it mm. seemed to me like he he was just a guy who didn't take no for an answer and he got things done because of it. Well, his stuff always was a little more dark and gritty anyway, so it needed a little more subdued tone that, that just wasn't available back then. So I could see that. And, of course, he didn't he didn't do anything, though, to straighten out the Batman cowl not being blue thing but uh, you can only do so yeah, much at a time or the um, hair yeah yeah the blue hair on superman but perhaps oh. perhaps the color failure in this issue is due to nepotism <laughs> yeah, let's let's hire one of our editors wives to do the coloring <laughs> why well, lynn wasn't even there anymore was he uh, Lynn was like, on, he was at DC at that DC. point, wasn't he? Yeah. Probably by this time, yeah. They were a house divided at that point. Although, who knows, maybe they might have been even divorced by this time. Yeah. Now, she, now she's also Glennis Oliver, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, oh well, she, she's going to come back and haunt us again. So. Oh, she's, she's going to be in your book? Yep. Excellent. Well, I, here's what I'll say. The, I have a they, book that uh, is Glennis Oliver free. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't even have Costanza in it. Costanza. Oh, John Costanza. Yes. But I do feel the need to sing it that way every time (laughs) he does appear on an issue. Um, Okay, in the overall, it's not a terrible issue. It suffers from Chris Claremont-itis, where everything has to be over-explained, and it's just, it's it's so dialogue-heavy for no good reason. When... uh, they show Sunspot bursting out of a wall at the mall. He doesn't have to think to himself, I forgot that I'm three stories up in the air. We know you're three stories. We can see that you're three stories up. Show don't tell. 
But in the overall, I mean, it's got some Sentinels, not great action, and it does try to grab you with a hook at the end. So I, I'm going to give it a B minus. All right, that's fair. What do you think, Ron? Well, uh, the truth is, is uh, I didn't get to read this uh, for the show, but uh, now thinking back on it, I must have read at least the first few issues of uh, New Mutants because uh, I remember my brother going on about uh, do all Scottish girls have red hair? Uh, so that red hair is no lie. Yeah, so uh, I remember that distinctly. Quoting, so quoting he, the quiet man, sorry. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I must have read the first few issues, and I, I, I vaguely remember this uh, Sentinel story, which it almost like, what was the point of Sentinel showing up? They, they, there's really no point of their showing up. Yeah, it's like, well, it we're going to do a story It was because you had to mall. have some action at some point in the story. Yeah, well, the Hellfire Club, I guess, sends them from their NASA control room where they're watching the mall security cameras or something. I do like, too, I forgot to mention, when they go to the Hellfire Club, and, and Roberto, Sunspot, says, and he's introducing himself, Sam's from the States, I'm Brazilian, and Sean is from Vietnam. We're international terrorists. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, when you read that in the 2000s, that ain't going to fly. Yeah, it, it, it is a different time. Yeah, that's just not going to... But then they, of course, go right into... The boy thinks he's making a joke, but he speaks closer to the truth than he knows. He and his fellow mutants pose as a grave threat to the security of the United States and the world as any madman with a gun. Now, doesn't Sebastian Shaw, who's being told this by Henry Peter Jairich, doesn't he know this? I would think he's the one who convinced Jairich of it. <laughs> That's why Project Wide Awake was established, Shaw, to combat that threat. And then Shaw jumps right on, and, and you almost think maybe Shaw's toying with him. Since he says, well, he's going to be Captain Obvious, I'll be Captain Even More Obvious. Do you believe, Henry, as some so-called evil mutants have boasted, that Homo Superior will eventually supplant Homo Sapiens? That humanity will become their slaves? Well, that's a danger, certainly. I mean, it's just, it's, just, <laughs> it's not readable. <laughs> Again, only my wife speaks like this. And this actually looks like a transcript of one of our conversations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to downgrade this a little from your grade and I'm giving it a C. That's uh, fair. I, the way I'm looking at it is the story is uneventful for the most part. Most of it is laying groundwork for subplots that are going to come back later. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's not really a lot of action like Ron pointed out the Sentinels are really just kind of there but not there for any actual reason. Uh, the artwork overall, I think, is pretty good, but I think Bob McCloud suffers a little bit from trying to make his teenagers look younger, and sometimes they look just very, very awkward. Now, I know that's part of being a teenager, is that you're awkward, <laughs> but they're not supposed to look that way as rendered by him. Uh, also, close-ups of faces almost look like it's licensed property type drawings. They yeah. Don't, they don't look real they just look like he's trying like like maybe he was using some you know magazines to get pictures to kind of copy into here or something because they just don't look natural the way he's got them in there in the last few pages eyeballs disappear yeah I, just, he just decided i'm not doing the eyeballs today I, I was wondering if that's part of the story if it's going somewhere with that you know maybe that's some sort of subplot that they're <laughs> leading us to like they were being mind controlled or something yeah i don't think they're that good I, I, let me just tell you this. If Chris Claremont, if that were the case, 
then one of them would be saying to the other, boy, it would be really strange if we were being mind-controlled right now, don't you think? <laughs> on the second-to-last page, uh, uh, in the middle middle uh, row of panels on the left, uh, I forget what her name was, the Asian character. She looks like she's Shashan. taking a wicked dump, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's why everybody's eyeballs just kind of burned out at that point. <laughs> Possibly. But, Paul, you just said something, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, and please. Scott will, Scott will anyway, <laughs> if I'm not. Um, but you said uh, these are teenagers. And, well, the, you know, the X-Men group is teenagers. Well, by the time this came out... This is, these are actually supposed to be preteens and actually a little bit younger. I don't think they're supposed to be preteens. I think they're supposed to be young teens. 14, 13, 15, somewhere in that but range. Wait, because Captain Exposition, Chris Claremont, has informed <laughs> us exactly how old these characters there are. You go. Rain is 14. Roberto is 13. Siam is 16. And... Uh, Jean Koi Man, that's her name, Sean, is uh, 19. She's so, yeah, I think the X-Men have already moved on at this point. Yeah, I think at this point the actual core X-Men are supposed to be in their 20s, except for Wolverine, who's over 100. Yeah. Who, at yeah, this no. point, I don't know if that was even established. And, and maybe it's just the, the artwork. To, I, always, I always, for some reason, understood that they were younger. They, they were less than teens. Maybe that's just the way they acted. I don't know. There's a very Riverdale vibe about them all, and I don't know if it's that cheap coloring or what. Or the zombies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, zombies and the, the uh, <laughs> life with Doc Ock. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just kiss in the corner. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, overall, it's, it's okay. It wasn't bad. No. Nah. Just not, you know, to, to me, C is the rating I give an average book. Yeah. And that's what I'm looking at. There's nothing special about it, but it's not horrible either, so it's average to me. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why I'm I'm saying it's a C. All right. Yeah, I'll accept that this time. But don't ever change my grade again. <laughs> don't ever change it again. All right. And either of you have anything more on this one? <sighs> Going <All right>. once? <laughs> No, I'm tired after that. All right. So <laughs> sit back and relax. And Ron, why don't you take us uh, to your book? Okay. I've got uh, New Mutant 68. Uh, it was priced at $1. Uh, this seems to be a trend with me. I'm only doing dollar books. Uh, dated October uh, 1988. What are you, Professor Allen now? <laughs> it's the, do- the dollar bin. The dollar <laughs> bin podcast. <laughs> Uh, anyways, um, uh, the cover is uh, called uh, Glossomer Comes a Calling, and it depicts a albino-type impish female moving chess pieces in the shape of the members of the New Mutants. Uh, the story is uh, Illusion, uh, 22 pages by Louise uh, Simonson, art by Brent Brevin, uh, lettering by Ken, and I'm going to mispronounce, Bezenek. Uh, colorist Glenn, uh, Glennis Oliver, editor Bob Harris, and chief Thomas D. Falco. Um, narration starts off telling us that we're in limbo. 
ruled by uh, Liana, a young blonde witch child, and resembling, uh, reassembling the uh, scaring glass, he finds spider ship that has kidnapped uh, Lila. But dark energies, uh, being hard to control, explodes in the scaring glass, uh, and in the, the shards that are shot out, we meet the rest of the new mutants. Uh, Warlock, uh, Bobby, who is Sunspot, uh, Reyna, uh, Danny, and Sam. Uh, we also find out a little bit of uh, Liana's uh, background and relationship with uh, Limbo, and she is destined to become a monster that rules Limbo in the future. Am I, I, am I on? Yeah, okay. we're just listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I would heard, come in with I, some snide comments, but I just have, don't have anything yet. <laughs> I, I just never heard Scott silent for that long. Um, I'm just uh, I'm letting you hang yourself. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, then we get introduced to uh, uh, Glossomer, who's a, a selfish and a, a whiny uh, uh, who also itch, happens to itch. have a ship. I wasn't going to go there. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but she I, has a ship, which is the important thing, plot-wise. She's got Goblin King hair, too. I was thinking very ElfQuest, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it's, no, she's got a very ElfQuest look, but then from the from behind, she's kind of got a David Bowie and Labyrinth look. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen that, so I can't say. Yeah. Uh, okay. So all of them finally, uh, they discuss the issue and they all agree to go together to try and find uh, Layla, Lila, uh, and not inform their schoolmaster, uh, Magneto, because it seems that they're all already grounded. Um, so they take Gossamer's ship and, uh, and the boys figure out how to track Spider's ship and the girls go and uh, try on clothes. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> this is and, so now pops, and now pops a little black ball that turns itself into any suit they want it to be. No, not even oh. that cool. Oh. That wasn't cool at all. Um, <laughs> so, as nice as Gossamer seems to be, she just has that uh, annoying ability to say exactly the wrong thing at the right time to basically upset anybody. Or maybe these people are just all very upsettable. Um, Anyways, on Spider Ship, we finally see Spider and uh, Lila uh, watching what's going on on uh, Gossamer's ship with the new mutant. And we find out that Gossamer is actually working for Spider. What? It was a surprise to me. How and can that, this be? And that Gossamer naturally heightens other people's passions that are around her. Well, she's kind of hot. Well, it in a David that... Bowie and Labyrinth kind of way. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know. Kind of a bisexual kind of way. Well, she's affecting both males and females in this uh, cast. That's, that's what I'm saying. But, but, <laughs> but I like the, the exposition that uh, her whole race, all the females do this. Um, yeah, she's a Celtron. So I'm just like, that's just planned the entire female race there. So, anyway, back to the story. Uh, where was I? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, anyways, 
uh, spider's going to use uh, Gossamer's natural abilities to exploit and then uh, cause the new mutants to fail in their mission. Um, so now he puts his plan into effect. Uh, Rain is uh, super crushing on Sam. Uh, Sam is ignoring Rain because he has the hots for Glossomer, but Bobby is being a jerk because he too also has the hots for Glossomer, and Danny is angry at everyone for not being more serious about the mission. And Warlock, he isn't affected by it at all, and can't seem to get anyone to listen to him when he says, "What? hey, it seems Glossomer is affecting us. We also find out about Danny's power, and you have to understand, I've never, I didn't know any of these characters from scratch, so I'm glad that in the story they actually told us something. So, exposition did help out here. Uh, it seems Danny's power can create someone's greatest desire or fear. So not to accidentally create things that people are feeling around her, she focuses her power by creating a small spear that she carries around. Uh, well, Rain gets upset and runs out because Sam is into Blossomer and not worried about his girlfriend, uh, Lila. Uh, so Danny goes after her and Glossomer follows. Now, when uh, Danny finds a rain, uh, Gossamer causes her to create Rain's greatest desire, which is Sam, who would be in love with her. So Sam presents himself, and pledges his love to Rain, and uh, she knows it's wrong, and of course runs away. Uh, and of course, as she's running away, she runs right into the real Sam. By the way, as this is going on, the ship has followed a spider ship to a planet, and the local security want the, the uh, papers or be blown out of the sky. So Danny creates the uh, security agent's desire uh, for the uh, supposed papers, which, when she does this, makes the uh, Sam that's in love with Rain disappear, allowing Rain to realize it was a something created by Danny, and now she thinks it was a cruel joke on her and flies into rage and attacks Danny in her wolf form. Now, there's a, a melee that goes on. Uh, Danny punches out Glossomer. Rain is sobbing in a mess, and Danny then runs off. Um, and then it turns out that what Danny had made for the security agent uh, wasn't the papers the security agent needed, but was a bribe, and the, uh, the supervisor of the agent said, uh, lets them know that bribing an, an uh, agent official is punishable by immediate execution, and hence the end of the issue. <laughs> and let me just say, for the listening audience's sake, it's not Ron's fault. It really is that confusing and complex. I would agree with that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll have, I'm going to give I'm going to give kudos to uh, uh, Louise Simonson. Okay. Uh, because because <laughs> it was that complicated, but I was able to follow it. Uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking those kudos away. <laughs> because why would you want to follow it? It's yeah. it's it's teen angst. Uh, this one on one. It's just the same, you know. Oh, I like him, and but he doesn't like me, and da da da. And this was my whole problem with uh, New Mutants from the get go. So this you issue know, could have been called Love Stinks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, much. yeah. I I'm look. I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like a misogynist. For saying this, and that's my job. I love women. Women are wonderful. But when you were a little kid, you loved—at least I loved—to play superheroes with my buddies. Mm -hmm. 
and the second one of the neighborhood girls would get in the story, it always had to turn into love and romance and heartbreak. This is, I'm taking kudos away from Louise Simonson because she is being the neighborhood girl sticking all this stuff into my superhero story. I don't want it. I'm with you. <laughs> I think, you know, when, when the Marvel Age of Comics started, I think Stan Lee inserted a little of the romance comic yes. type of storyline going. And basically he did the exact same thing in every single series with the unrequited love, the guy who's too shy to tell her how much he loves her or he's too afraid to tell her how much he loves her because uh you know he's it's too dangerous or whatever and they both love each other from afar and it was the same story in every single superhero book and it was just enough romance comic to make it kind of pathosy yes and but you know why he did that because all of his list all of his readers (laughs) had unrequited love and were too embarrassed or ashamed to tell the one they liked that they liked them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was, mm-hmm. he was only speaking their language. And, and, and every one of them would have a thought balloon saying, if only I could tell her that she's oh, yeah. the one oh, yeah. who I love. Well, <laughs> I, I will tell you this. Because t- you know, I always had girls that I liked that I couldn't tell who they were. And when I would walk away from them, actually half of my face would be the cool me. And then half of my face would be the normal me. <laughs> so kind of like you had a Harvey Dent thing going? No, no, I have, no, like Peter a Dicko. Yeah, Peter Parker, you know, he always walks oh. away from the girl. He can't be with her because he's Spider-Man. And they have to show you that by half of his face being Spider-Man. Okay. I had the same thing going on, but I didn't, you know, there was nothing but a cool me and a not cool me. You see, Everybody there was a not saw cool me, not cool me. And there was an even less cool me. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think there's any, any use of me even using the word cool and me in a sentence. Um, so, but I, I mean, uh, uh, to me, this 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 came off like uh, a lot of the stuff that was being printed in the eighties. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I I feel uh, when I was reading the, these new mutant things, I was like going, yeah, this is this is all that whole eighties vibe where they would take something popular and then do baby versions of it. Flintstone Kids, uh, Muppet Baby, Man Strong and Growing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, to, to, to make up for the fact that I thought the story was kind of weak, uh, the artwork is uh, compatible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was about to jump into the artwork. Here's my issue with the artwork. That several years later, Bill Sienkiewicz has put such an indelible stamp on this book with his weirdness that they have not been able to escape his semi-house style yet. And... Really, some of the things he does, only he can do for a reason, but only he can do. Warlock looks ridiculous. Warlock looks like the, uh, what's it, like the cockroach? Oh, not the cockroach, the shrimp from the Muppets. <laughs> yeah, Pepe. Yeah. Pepe. Yeah. But I, yeah, I was going to say that because I actually, when I was I put, picked this out, I opened it up and I went, oh, Brent Plevins. I like Brent Plevins. Uh, he did a series at Marvel, actually for Epic, uh, called The Boz Chronicles. Uh, and I, I actually bought that series, and uh, and that artwork was fabulous. And this is no, this is four years later, and it's nowhere near it. No, he's trying to conform. First thing you're seeing is that that early '90s style starting to materialize, 
with the gigantically over-exaggerated figures, the massive hair, the tiny feet. Uh, check page 11, panel 2 out. Uh, okay. What is that on top of Danny's head? Anybody? Bueller? Uh, it's a big, big orange thingy. <laughs> no clue with this giant I guess orange. it's like a wig. But her hair's sticking out. So why would she it's, put a it wig on like her It looks like she took, hair the ha- she took it, Rain's it, hair and put it on her head. Well, it's a, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's like one of them fur caps. But it's orange. It's like one of them fur caps. But let's give yeah, credit like the, for it, too. Like, I mean, this guy's career went on 22 years. He pitched for the Twins, the Rangers, <laughs> the Pirates, the Indians, the Twins again, and then the Angels. No, no, he's, no. He's wrong, got wrong 287 career no, wins. No. Oh, what? No, no, no. This is Brett Blevins. Brett? Oh, never Brett mind. Blevins. <laughs> never mind. I was, I was thinking Hall of Fame here, you know? No, no. And, you know, obviously, you know, if he, he was having a winning season and did this comic book at the same time, I would give him credit. But, but no, this this is far, far, yes. Yeah, so I, I, first thing, I, I was like, this must be a house style. I think I think Scott hit it on the nose. I think they haven't fully escaped. It's it's an effort to give a Sienkiewicz type house style. Yeah, and unfortunately, and, when they finally do escape, it, guess where they escape it too. Well, that's where we're going after this one's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the sad thing is, I remember when the Marvel house style was John Romita. I love that. That was a house style. style. I'm fine with that. I was fine with the Jack Kirby as as the house style. Yeah. I, I this this. But this wasn't a house style. This was a book style, though. Yeah, it was the books. Yeah, it was the style for the book. You're right. But you know what? I, I mean, I don't like this. I'm, I've heard Burt Blevins' name. I'm not really that familiar with him. I'm assuming this is not his best work. Yeah. If you get a chance, check out the Boz Chronicles. That's yeah. No, he's he's trying to really conform to something else here. That's that's all this is. But I, I, you know, I look at this and I start to think, well, it's only going to go up from here. And then we get my book. <laughs> Uh, I had one more thing. What was my other thing I was going to say about this? I don't know. Um, yeah, I can't think of it anyway. I'll the just interrupt you. The last panel looks like Walt Simonson to me. Yeah. Which panel? The way you the, the ship, the alien ship. Yeah. Uh, looks like something Walt Simonson drew. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's the nicest thing I could say about any of the art in this book. And I, I don't, I'm not, I don't like the coloring either. Again, yeah, mm. it's it's um, too, uh, it's almost it almost looks like it's the color is drained from it. Yes, it's a very bland palette. Yeah, and and, and I'm going to take away some credit from the inking too, just to make this universal, well, because the <laughs> the backgrounds are virtually non-existent through this book. Sure, there's no, there's very little detail work. Yeah, that's oh, shoot. Again. Yeah, and I I flipped away from the uh, from the book already, but there was a there was one page where they're showing Spider, and there's the most insane, bizarre set of cross hatching for no reason in the background. I remember what my other comment was. I had a problem uh, with a lot of these uh, mutant books because you know when we, we're talking about mutants, it's a science fiction thing. You know, you know, we're talking about genetics and all that stuff. But for some reason, they kept wandering into this uh, black magic, and I, I just 
Bobby Ilyana. Yeah, I know. Ilyana's a sorceress. But she's a mutant. Well, so is Wanda Maximoff. You know, I'm just saying, you know, it, I, I always found it confusing. And I think actually, I might actually have read the uh, Magic miniseries. And I think that was one of the most depressing things I ever read in my life. <laughs> I mean, about literally. Scarlet Witch? Oh, I, I like Scarlet Witch, but I just figured they call her Scarlet Witch because, you know, she's she in the old country. Oh. That's all I got. Like yeah, it. you know what? The other thing, just to, that you pointed out that I like, that I, that I definitely am on board with, is the thought that Gossamer looks like she came, she walked out of an issue of Elf Quest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I do like the Wendy Peeny art, but I don't like it in this book. <laughs> so basically, we're saying Brett ripped off everybody else. And yeah, but I think under du- yeah, I think under duress though. I mean, I don't think he wanted to. I think that was his paycheck depended on his ripping this stuff off. And perhaps if he drew it in his own style instead of the Sienkiewicz style, it would have been much better. Yeah, but I don't think that's what they hired him to do. Yeah, shame. Yeah. Sort of like Sienkiewicz on uh, Moon Knight. They didn't hire him to do Sienkiewicz. They hired him to do Neil Adams. Well, he definitely started out as a Neil Adams wannabe. Yeah. Or, you know, told to be. But, you know, eventually... Branched off into his own, and you know, like I said, acquired taste. Uh, <laughs> Culminated in Electra Assassin. Uh, actually, I actually own that one too. Uh, that's the mini that you read one issue and go, "Why? Why am I reading this? <laughs> How can I read this?" And see, I also think he's the, and I'm gonna probably get slagged for this. I think he's kind of the progenitor of a David Mack, who his Daredevil stuff is almost incomprehensible. Well, what I saw of David Mack, I always thought he was trying to do some kind of a combo of that and and Frank Miller. Mm, okay. And, and, yeah. Frank Miller has a style that should not be imitated. When Frank Miller's at his best, his stuff was very good as far as storytelling and mood setting. But it wasn't the type of art that should be anybody's house style. It's not a photo reference for sure. No, absolutely not. All right, anybody got any more on this one, or do we keep moving? I think we keep on trucking. All right, somebody's got to get up and do a radio show pretty early, so I think we got to keep keep the show moving along. That's what I'm hearing. Okay, well, I'm doing New Mutants number 87, and I picked this because it's a very, very significant issue historically uh, in the series, but I had never read it, so I thought... Good one to jump into. Uh, and it's historically significant because on the cover they rip off Alpha Flight? Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's why it's significant. It's significant. Or is it significant? It, it, it is significant, and I'll jump into this right away. It's significant because there are many people who say this is the book that opened the door to the 90s style, that this specific issue did that. Or is it significant because Cable's eye looks like Steve Austin's eye on my six million dollar man Halloween costume as a child I'm sorry uh, he's playing golf again <laughs> no no that was none no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not Danny Noonan no Jeff did that though one day he was telling us how his people were confused in his class 
because he did his Steve Austin impression and nobody knew what it was. And he attributed it to a generational gap. And we attributed it to he was doing Caddyshack, not $6 million man. <laughs> well, was uh, was Ty, Ty doing $6 Ty million dollar man when he did that? No, I thought it was more of a mantra. I didn't think it was a $6 million man. Yeah, I just kind of... I, I I never looked to the subtext of the uh, movie, and <laughs> perhaps perhaps that was a bad thing. Maybe I no, need to go. Good, to, good. Yeah, I need to see what they, what it is they're trying to lead me to, and what lesson they're trying to teach me there. Mm. But in any event, <laughs> New Mutants number eighty seven was in March of nineteen ninety, and the cover price was once again one dollar. And the cover that we started talking about is by Liefeld and McFarlane. Mm-hmm. So it is truly a, uh, a case study in excess of stylisticness. Uh, it's uh, kind of a somewhat different looking cable than we eventually got. And they show him from the waist up holding, what else? A very large gun. Giant gun that no human being would actually hold. And there are four insets all in targeting circles. And as best as I can tell, it is Rusty, Skids, Richter, and Wolfsbane. Well, you got me. Um, That's what I believe. Since they never actually used their names in the book, so you have to go by the actual human names. That's the only way I can identify them. (laughs) And then the, uh, the text on the cover says, Watch out, muties. Here comes the man called Cable. Dun, 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 I, thought, uh, I thought it said, and one shall surely die. It doesn't say that? No, oh. not this time. No. no. I'm sorry. That's when they did that for Alpha Flight. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, that, sure this, to me, sure that this, was an iconic color, cover. This one, not so much. Are you sure this isn't supposed to be a fake <laughs> off of Sarah Palin's website with the targeted thing? Yeah, no. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they, they all look kind of shocked, except for Richter, who looks like he's uh, kind of in a drug-induced super. Yeah, I think he's baked. <laughs> with his with his uh, mohawk. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this story is titled A Show of Power, and it's written once again by Louise Simonson, penciled by Rob Liefeld, inked by Bob Wyacek, colors are by M. Rakopich, Edited by Bob Harris, and the editor-in-chief was Tom DeFalco. Ah, so the editor-in-chief, and didn't Bob Harris wind up uh, succeeding Tom DeFalco? I think he did, and I think he was generally... Yeah, they hated ...credited <laughs> with overseeing the era when Marvel went into bankruptcy. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, he, that's... he was blamed for a lot of that. So Al Milgram got booted because he, after Harris got fired, he buried a like a, a message about Harris in one of the bookshelves in an issue. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'd love to see that. Now, isn't Harris at DC now? I don't know where Bob Harris is now. Probably. I think he is, but I'm not sure. I think, uh, I'm, well, I, again, I'm not sure, so I'm not going to, I don't want to speculate on it. But our story opens up with the Mutant Liberation Front, which consists of Wildside, who can distort reality and make the people invisible, Forearm, who literally has four super strong arms, Tempo, who can make time fly with her, whatever that means, 
uh, Rasper, who can shoot paralyzing neural disruptors, Strobe, who can burn through almost anything, and a kind of zaftig woman named Thumbelina, who apparently can shrink. Now, I got a question first. I now, probably was... don't have an answer, but go ahead. You say it was the Mutant Liberation Front, not the Liberation Front of Mutants? Because <laughs> I get the... <laughs> The MLF and Brian right now. The Liberation Front. No, that's us. I'm done, Jerry. That's the only joke I had for this one. Ron drops the mic and walks off. Well, yeah, you don't want to get me started doing too much Monty Python because I'll be the only one finding it funny, but I will find it very funny. So anyway, the Mutant Liberation Front, or the Mutant Front of Liberations, set off a bomb at a research facility and leave. Cable arrives just before it detonates and kills 15 people. Way to go, Cable. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Asgard, the new mutants are dining with Balder the Brave when a fairy delivers a map to return to Earth since the Rainbow Bridge is out under repair. And Danny Moonstar says, oh, she can't leave because she's a Valkyrie now. Okay. So then we go back to a maximum security facility where Skids and Rusty are recovering from some kind of battle that took place in an issue before this one. They're visited by a nasty-looking mystique who takes talks terrorism with them and just kind of expositionally talks for a while. And then we cut back to Asgard where Warlock, who's not Adam Warlock but the Technovirusy thingy, uh He's acting as their ship and taking them to some interdimensional voyage home, and they set off after talking a lot. We cut back to the Mutant Liberation Front, where we meet Strife, an excessively armored and caped dude who punishes Wildside because when we weren't looking, it seems he was injured and jeopardized their mission with the bomb earlier. He keeps Wildside and Thumbelina with him for I don't know why. And sends the others off on a mission to kidnap Skids and Rusty from that facility we were in before. Cable tracks them and is ready to surprise them, but before he can, we have to go back to our interdimensional interdimensional travelers, who are attacked by the mindless ones all the way from the 1960s Strange Tales book with Doctor Strange. And before that goes anywhere, we cut back again to the mutant terrorists. Cable confronts them and... He has his guns ablazing, and he's doing kind of well against them until he grabs Strobe by the throat, and she melts his metal hand. And he just kind of fades away at that point. Once again, we go back to the Travelers, who kind of go through a dimensional portal and come out by the Statue of Liberty. Meanwhile, the Mutant Liberation Front come into the hospital where Rusty and Skids are, which results in a guard shooting Rusty for reasons I'm not sure, except I guess he just doesn't like mutants. And the terrorists actually protect the two youngsters from the guards, and they all teleport away. Uh, We get one more scene of the travelers who see X-Factor's ship about to crash and head off to try and save it. And we close out the issue with Cable uh, discussing his prosthetic hand with a doctor and, in his mind, planning out for his next battle. And that's the end of the issue. So it's... (laughs) historical in a lot of ways and I think the and anticlimactical on all the others I'm sorry? and anticlimactical on all the others yes but I think 
it's historical in a bad way. (laughs) Even though this is a highly sought out issue that has, you know, collector value to it. But I think it is the start of like 90s excesses, the big guns, the uh, placing artwork over the story and not necessarily to its to its uh, improvement in any way, shape or form. Uh, it, it, It just doesn't really capture my imagination at all it doesn't really make me want to read the next issue to speak of no and what's interesting about it to me is look i think you will agree there were some good comics produced in the 90s absolutely so it's it's difficult yeah, publishing uncle scrooge that, yeah for a lot of us who who enjoy comics it's tough for us to hear other people go well the 90s sucked but there was a certain type of comic in the 90s that did suck and there were a lot of them. And this comic really is kind of the epitome of what that became. It's not quite as brightly colored, and it doesn't have quite the cover. The cover's not quite there, and the excess isn't quite there on the inside. But you actually see a comic where sufficient amounts of violence overshadow the fact that there is nothing actually happening. I think that's an apt description, and and I and I agree, and I don't want to blast the 90s. We've talked on the show in the past about how there are a lot of good books that came out in the 90s, mm-hmm. but the problem is they become overshadowed by the excesses of the other books. Yeah. yeah so pe- this people is... tend to, to lump them all together because there were so many negative books, but if you, if you look hard, uh, you can find a lot of high-quality stuff in the 90s. Sure. This ain't it. But yes. Yeah, I think this this suffers from a lot of the things that uh, that Rob Liefeld is criticized for. Uh, the big guns, the lack of anatomical proportioning in his drawing. <laughs> Page, tw- you know, one of the things that is always said about Rob Liefeld is he can't do feet. Therefore, he knows he can't do feet and he tries not to do feet. Page 20. I have it open to exactly that shot, and I was just looking. <laughs> You're talking about the mindless one's foot? Yes. It's like it's made out of a scrap of a scarf. <laughs> it's just kind of fluttering at the end of his ankle. Yeah, because if he steps on that thing, he's falling to the ground. Yeah. He's wearing a flipper. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> he does. If you read through the book, most of the book, he tries to stay away from the feet. And this well, is why. Go two two more pages to page twenty two and look at forearm's foot on the leftmost panel. Page twenty two. Twenty four. Twenty three. I'll get to twenty two eventually. Twenty two. Okay, leftmost foot. But... What? What what foot? The at the well that, that tiny little flap of skin he has coming at the bottom of his foot on the leftmost panel at the bottom. Oh leftmost, leftmost. Okay, I was on the Oh my goodness, yes. Or and just keep going down, you know, go down to the next page, bottom panel, uh, the little that little white dangling thing that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's terrible. It, <laughs> it really is terrible. Oh uh, yeah, there was. And, and I, I don't like too. to overly criticize Liefeld because I think he, I think it's one of these things where he's been criticized so much that it's gone too far. Well, I mean, look on seventeen. Uh, Stripes feet are pretty decent. Seventeen, not, not realistic, but decent. They're okay. 
They're still a little smaller than they should be. They're out of Well, he's, he's got petite feet. That's not it. It's uh, from, from uh, Blazing Saddles. How do he do such tremendous stunts with such little feet? Uh, you know, I, I, I actually I met Liefeld at New York Comic Con last year. And I always... There's something about people who enjoy what they're doing so much that it becomes a little infectious to me. And I enjoy mm. reading what they're doing or listening to their music or watching their movies or whatever, just because it seems like they're having so much fun. And Liefeld does have a little bit of that. He's, every time I see him, he's got this huge grin on his face. He seems to be really enjoying himself. And Yeah, he's taking your money and giving you <laughs> stops. <laughs> but, but laughing my way all the way to the bank. There is something about that. that, that well, you know what? There's, there's a lot of guys out there who are taking my money and they're perfectly miserable like alan moore <laughs> and i find that to be annoying and i find that doubt I attitude comes comes across to me as well and it makes me like his work less i don't yeah to me you know the product's worth what it's worth and if it's good then i'll buy it and i don't really care what you do well i do care what you do with the money but yeah i'm i'm now looking at page 13 i don't even know who that is who is that uh that was it who's Huh? Uh, I forget what her name is now already. The the one that was with Rusty is that Boom Boom or? Oh, the other one. She's in the hospital. They got her in a bed, and she's got her little gloves on. Well, that's Skids. Well, I don't know what her mutant power is. I think maybe she might need the gloves to contain. I it. hope she needs the gloves in order to keep from what draining the batteries in the remote control she's holding. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what her power is. Her power is an inability to keep her hair from her from the middle of her face. You know, I, I'm I'm looking. I was looking at this issue, and it's the '90s, right? This is. Well, this 1990? is 1990. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's uh, March. How I met, how, how I met, in an episode of How I Met Your Mother, they they were watching a video of the 1990s from Canada, and that, let's someone go to said, the wall? "Yes," and the, the question was asked. Why does it look like the 1980s? Well, that's because the 90s got the 80s got to the Canada later. Yeah, that's um, right. I remember that. And obviously, it, it, uh, Liefeld didn't know the 80s were over yet because this is like 84, 85. Everyone's Madonna esque. <laughs> yeah, that's there's a little bit of that. And if you were Mystique, yeah, no, that, and, I had a question. You could about affect that. how you look. You can make yourself look any way you want. Would you look as ugly as she does on page 14? Yeah. Now, I, I'm not a big mutant fan or knowledgeable. It, Mystique was one of um, Magneto's followers, right? Uh, in the movies, she certainly is. In but, comics, she was on occasion, but she also she she's kind of more of a free agent type. She does whatever, whatever, you know, makes her happy. But she's never been like. Well, I mean, she's working for the government now. She she did uh, with the Freedom Force for a while. It was her, Pyro, the Blob, Avalanche. They they basically became uh, government operatives in order to get this, uh, clemency. This I don't know. I don't know who you hang out with, Paul. Ronald, you know a bunch of these guys around yeah. here who play who play in the bar bands. Yeah, and that's what this just starts to sound like after a while. Yeah, I was playing with so and so on the bass and so and so. We were called Johnny's Guns, and then we decided to disband that. But I kept the bass, and we did that. We played a few gigs as Sucker Punch, and then we, you know, 
we're going to put this band together, then we're going to put this band together. It just sounds like a bunch of bar bands. Well, well, well I'll just try to figure out because I, 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 I mean, the blob, I know, was definitely one of Magneto's uh, cronies. Yeah, frequently. Point. Yeah, and, and I'm like, okay, so if I'm, I'm with government, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start up a group to stop mutants. So I'm going to hire all the bad guys who failed every time they fought the mutants. <laughs> yeah, but they were really formidable, Ronald. They were formidable. <laughs> they were formidable. Uh, so, yeah, uh, no, I, I can understand, but but I think the whole idea behind that was to make them real easy to to not have blurred lines over good and bad. You know these are bad guys, and yet they're working for the government, so the, you know the, the government, government is, is is you know it's the evil government. Well, yeah, the Republicans are in charge. That is true. That is true. It's and and you know uh, there are very few writers who are going to give the benefit of the doubt to a Republican ever. Yeah. Chuck Dixon, Bill Wellingham, then you're on your own. And as it turns out, eventually Frank Miller. Really? <laughs> what, when, how? What? He, 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 <laughs> when, they, when the Occupy movement was going on, he was vocal about being uh, against it all. Huh. That's news to me. <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's when all all the liberal comic readers started to hate Frank Miller. <laughs> they couldn't hate him for what he's done to comics, but they, they had to wait no. for that, huh? I'm still waiting for an. I, I'm the I'm that. Well, never mind. I'm the guy who's waiting for an apology for Dark Knight. Still, so <laughs> the first one or the second? <laughs> well, the second one. The second one. He just needs to go to hell. There's no apology. <laughs> but, but the first one, I can't stand. I'm the I'm the guy who can't stand the first Dark Knight. I. Thought the first. I I'm, I don't love the first one the way some people do, but I thought it was good. Uh, uh, the problem with the, with it is other people decided that they had to do the same thing, and it's you know they didn't do it as well, and they, it became so cliche that it's ridiculous. But when it came out, I thought it was good. When it came out, I thought this is a pretty good idea, and then I read it and went, oh really? This is it? Okay. I, I, you know, I, that was that was when he was in his very liberal stage. So Superman had to be the stooge of the government. Blah 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 blah. Oh yeah. Story wise, I liked the elements in the story. Uh, the execution of the story left something to desire. And of course, the art was absolutely well. It was Frank Miller. I mean, his original run on Daredevil, I was reading month to month as it came out. I love that, and I thought it was awesome. Yes, I I love his Daredevil, and I love when he came back to Daredevil when he did. Uh, they call it Born Again now. Mm-hmm. At the time they called it Apocalypse. Nobody remembers that, but I actually have a poster of it when they called it Apocalypse. But uh, that's a great storyline. When when I back at the you know around that time when there was a series coming out that I thought this could have value. You know, it's when I became a speculator, and I would have my store you know with my pull list. Uh, for that series, pull pull two of them for me on that one. And I remember at some point during the Frank Miller run, probably not too far into it, I started pulling two on that. So I have doubles of most of Frank Miller's run. Well, nice. I mean, uh, and I don't know if it was you, Scott, but uh, it might have been Gary. Because I didn't, at that point in time, I wasn't reading, I don't think, any Marvel. Uh, and someone said, You've got to read this new uh, Frank Miller Daredevil book, and I and I they gave me a copy, and I actually read it. And I went out and bought it. We bought the it. New, so, well, you're talking we, about the Born Again storyline. Yeah, 
Yeah, I was all about, I was very into that. I thought it was great. Now, by the time Born Again came out, I think that was during my comic buying and reading hiatus. So I was not on it at that point, but I was on it through the whole Death of Electra, you know, Bullseye saga. Yeah, I just got all those off eBay. I hope I they cost a lot of money because I have two no, of each of them. No, <laughs> I got I got like a whole whole run for like ten bucks. That's 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 a thirty year investment down the drain. Thanks a lot, Ron. <laughs> hey, anything I can help, you know, uh, ask Professor Allen what he thinks of uh, even comics with investments. So there's a reason why Paul is no longer in the investment opportunities yeah. industry. So. <laughs> But for those who, those who think I'm a Marvel hater, I'm not a hater. If they do something really good, I'd like to read it. <laughs> if they do something here, here's something really good. Nope, don't think so. <laughs> oh, I, I, I always have been more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, but I'm also not a DC hater. I no. there's, there's a lot of stuff I love. In fact, I was getting two issues each of uh, New Teen Titans when they were coming out. Yeah, it's... DC, I, I was always a Marvel guy, but DC's an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> Did Sienkiewicz become the house style for them? Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 